The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody, and a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. So we're starting uh, a new book today, and this is a complimentary text that maybe a few of you or maybe a lot of you would like to get and read along. We'll be using it probably for the next nine months or so, depending on how long it takes us to get through the book. It just came out recently, so unfortunately it's just in a hardback, and it's Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators by Guy Armstrong. I'll make sure we get this up on the blog on our website, and and I'll see if we can scan just the first chapter. For those who aren't going to purchase the book, you can at least read the first chapter. And we have it ordered at Moon Palace Books, which is just about seven blocks or so south of here, right next to Peace Coffee, nice independent bookstore, and they'll sell it for 20% off for Common Ground folks, so just let them know. And you can call them first to make sure that they haven't sold out of the book. They're, they're just keep, for the next number of months, several copies on hand for people. So go ahead and get a copy if you'd like. It's a great book. I read it during my spring retreat um, and I uh, thought it might be useful for all of us, even though it's, a, as you might expect, a relatively subtle subject in the Buddhist teachings, this teaching on emptiness. Sometimes we refer to that um, as the conditional nature of experience or the um, impersonal, natural nature of experience, right? As a counterweight to our habit, of asserting a sense of ownership, a sense of permanence, a sense of this is me or mine, belongs to me or it's mine, or I'm that, this is who I am. So we tend, we have a, partly because of the way our language works and the way our culture conditions our mind, we have a way of basically moving through life jumping from one self-drama to the next. Even when I'm thinking about you or thinking about my cat or thinking about the world, even those thoughts about the world, it may seem like, well, I'm not self-absorbed. But when you really unpack, look at your dramas about politics or about this or about that, somehow the sense of me or mine, the sense of I, is always the storing role in all of our dramas. Even if you're thinking about how your partner is imperfect, he or she or they are imperfect in terms of what I expect or want or need, right? So it's always about me or mine. That's just how, I mean, it's just a deep habit in our mind to keep constructing meaning in terms of a self. And so this teaching on emptiness is really, it's a skillful means creating a counterweight, a way out of that trap or that habit of always thinking in self-centered terms, always organizing the meaning our thinking mind is constructing. It's not that thinking itself is somehow bad or you got to stop thinking. It's the way the mind is thinking that's off, right? Because it's most of our thinking is coming out of our, what in Buddhism we might call a wrong understanding or a misperception. The mind, our mind, is deeply confused 
It just is in a deep habit of imputing a sense of me, a permanent me or I, in terms of all the meaning our thinking mind is constructing. It doesn't have to, we don't have to construct meaning around that sense of a permanent me or I, right? It's just a habit. But it's such a deep, persistent habit, excuse me, that we don't really remember much outside of that habit. It's like a different reality that not doing that would be initially appear as a different reality. But we all bump into that other reality, you know, where we're not, the mind is not constructing, not organizing meaning around a sense of self. And we call that like a moment of flow, you know, a moment of being in the flow of things or a moment of uh, transcendence, a moment of bliss, a moment of everything seemed perfect, you know. But it was because of the way the light was going through the leaves of the tree. So we always assign that beauty, that release to something like, well, I was with all my friends and so I felt so free or I was playing one-on-one basketball with my friend and it was just like everything was happening on its own. We always make up another self-centered story to explain why that moment was so blissful or so easy or so light or so freeing. But it was just that the mind accidentally forgot to construct a self-centered drama. And usually the mind was so in the moment, just sort of being in the moment, that it did temporarily forget to do that neurotic thing. And then we felt some freedom until we didn't anymore, right? Because generally, the more the mind starts, the conventional mind, the habit-bound mind, it starts to feel the bliss, and then it starts to take the bliss personally. And that's the trigger to tell herself a story about, oh, I've always wanted life to be this way for me. Right? That's that reassertion of a sense of me. And this is the deep habit. And if you really look into the mystical traditions and any of the sort of organized religions, they always start talking about I mean, they're going to use different language about this, but they're always talking about the same problem of human beings getting into a very deep rut, deep habit, of organizing their life through thinking, through making up meaning, the construction of meaning through thought, with thought, and that meaning always having a sense of separation, an unquestioned sense of a me that somehow got itself apart from the world. How could that happen? right? But it doesn't it seem that way, that we exist apart from the world? How could that be? But it seems so apparent that we're apart. So instead of like trying to solve that problem, like how can I, me, see that's another self-centered drama, this alienated me apart from the grace of God, needing to find my way back to the divine. And the reason that doesn't tend to work is because it's positing a truth that isn't true. It's imagining that there is this existential problem of being apart, separated, that needs to be resolved. And it's an endless frustration. And the practice, spiritual practice, is always about realizing that that's never been true. Still work, right? Because that's a real leap of faith. 
because that sense of alienation feels so true to us. The sense of there's a spiritual problem that needs to be solved. Doesn't that seem true? And Buddhist practice isn't, is really about beginning the spiritual life without any fixed view. Let me just check out how it is, what it is, what's going on. Because w- we, have a, we begin with a deep sense of humility. If I already knew what the problem was, I probably would be free of the problem. So maybe I don't know. So maybe I'm going to put my emphasis on being awake, paying attention, opening up, without a fixed view, without thinking I already know what's going on. I often mention this because it was so useful for me, but a number of years ago, when Fricky, my wife, and I got to do this retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, a well-known Buddhist monk, Western monk. He grew up in Seattle and then uh, studied with Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, who died in the 90s. Uh, for a number of years in the 60s and 70s, and then went on to start a monastery, a couple of monasteries in England and other places in the West. And uh, he's still teaching in his mid-80s now, Ajahn Sumedho is. But when we did this retreat with him, he'd often say something like, you know, I'm a suffering being who's practicing in order to be free. And then he'd laugh, <laughs> a very liberating laugh. Like, how ridiculous that presumption is because it presumes we already know it's an arrogant thing to think that that's true i'm an ignorant deluded human being that needs to do this arduous practice in order to wake up and to be free or to you know realize nibbana or whatever we create a story the thinking mind creates a story and then the mind out of habit holds on to that story because somehow, existentially, we feel safer thinking we know what's going on. So we cling to that story. I'm a deluded human being that is doing my meditation practice every morning and trying to get to common ground on, you know, on Sunday mornings and reading my Buddhist books and in order to become... And that's a very compelling story that we tell ourselves. I mean, I, I tell myself that story. I just don't believe it as much as I used to. But I still repeat that story in my mind. But more and more I catch myself and realize, what do we realize when there's some humility and some balance in the mind? That's just a thought being known. Right? And if there's any charge, like, like holding on to it as a life preserver, oh, that's just attachment being known. Clinging is being known. Being identified with that thought is being known. And we find ourselves in this more open space, which is not so easy to inhabit, where, you know, in Zen, in the Zen training in um, Buddhism, different tradition, they call it don't know mind. Right? But in all practice, all traditions, we have to learn how to inhabit the space. We call it being mindfully aware. When you're mindfully aware, when you're open to the way it is, present moment awareness, you don't have a fixed view. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who you are. Because if any of that arises, that's just a thought being known. You're not a suffering being practicing in order to be free. Being mindfully aware, being open means this is being known. It's very simple. And then you get more of a sense of what the Buddha means by the term emptiness. 
It's not like some existential reality, oh, everything's empty. It's a pragmatic or a skillful means. Okay? So we're we're letting the moment be empty of meaning in the sense that I'm practicing my mind, the mind, not clinging to meaning, not imagining meaning, the constructions of my thinking mind, are more than what they are. It's just a thought being known. So I might have the thought, I'm a male. And then the clinging, identification with that thought. But I can notice that thought, I'm a male. I'm 59 years old. I live over there. You know, this is Minneapolis. I can have any number of thoughts and identification as if that thought is more than a thought being known. You see what I'm saying? So it's just a thought being known. And then I'm not trapped by the whatever my mind thinks being male is, or being white, or being... So it's not about not thinking, it's about not being confused or imprisoned by thoughts. Well, that's just a thought being known. And then we start to feel ungrounded because we, as an existential problem that we've created ourselves, the thinking mind has created ourselves, we think, we, we neurotically think we need the solidity of being attached to thought or to meaning that thoughts create. But we can. We can be unmoored. We can be open. We can be in that don't know mind. We can be in the space of being aware, awake, not fixed. So think of this. Think of our basic practice of being mindfully aware, present moment awareness, open, or however you like, whatever words you use to remind yourself of the basic practice the Buddha taught as a counterweight to the mind being identified with meaning, fixed, thinking it knows. Right? That's a good definition for ignorance or delusion is thinking you know. Right? What, it doesn't matter what you think you know. I'm the best in the world. I'm the worst in the world. Even thinking everything's empty and being identified with that thought. So that's not in the direction of the practice. That's in the direction of the causes for more stress. Right? You can create a lot of stress, a lot of suffering by being identified with the Buddhist teachings. Just like you could be you know, any fundamentalist view. You could be a fundamentalist secular humanist or atheist or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. It's the fixedness. It's a mind that has let itself become dependent on a fixed view or a fixed meaning. And then that mind, whether you notice it or not, is neurotically dependent on defending its fixed view. And even if you're somebody who's quite you know, wishy-washy, Still, in any moment, even though it changes, in any moment you're defending the view you have in that moment. And then you have a different view, and then you defend that view. So the mind is still supposing that it needs that ground. It needs meaning, as opposed to using meaning to connect, holding it appropriately when we connect or communicate with each other. But we understand it's just thought. It's just meaning being constructed, being shared. And it's a fluid thing. The storytelling mind, the way we do that culturally, we do it in 
community. We do it with our partners. Right? But it's a fluid, changing thing, never giving us any permanent ground. Came across this the other day from, some of you know John Wellwood. He's written a couple of well-known books. Kind of, I think he'd describe himself as a Buddhist psychologist. Um, and um, there's a great book about relationships. Oh, I can't remember the title. It's really wonderful, though. But this quote I thought was really useful as we begin our almost year-long study of the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. In one of his books, he wrote, we are not just humans learning to become Buddhas, right? We're not just humans learning how to be free, right? That's what we mean, be to be free or awake. That's what a Buddha would be, right? But we are also Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. I really like this. We're also Buddhas, right? Learning, um, but we're also Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human, right? Because what he's pointing to is this teaching on emptiness. So what we also like, it may be more useful instead of thinking that I'm a human being, I'm a suffering human being, a deluded human being, trying to become a Buddha. It might actually, as a skillful means, as a support for our practice, it might be more useful, more skillful to think of ourselves what this is, having a mind and body, having a human life, what this is, is its nature. This, whatever this is, that I call me, Mark Nunberg, is just nature. Impersonal causes and conditions that have gotten set in motion due to innumerable past causes and conditions, right? It's this natural dance. And this dance, in the same way that any other aspect of nature, looking at the sky, the weather, what we call the weather, looking at an ecosystem, looking at the land around us, all the creatures doing their dance together, even the common ground community, any natural system. Is there a problem? The moon, earth, Solar system, galaxy, galaxies, universe spinning, moving. Is there a problem in how everything is moving together? Or even the molecule, atoms, subatomic particles doing their dance in any particular point here in the room. So from a point of view of nature, like when we look out at the weather as a natural system, many impersonal causes and conditions making what we call weather the way it is right now. Is there anything that is essentially wrong with weather? Or you look at a marsh, you know, and all the different creatures and plants and animals and earth and water and rock and you don't we don't pathologize a dead log, you know, a tree that fell over or a creature that was, was eaten. It's all just kind of in that dance. Right? So when we see ourselves that way, now this is just a thought exper- experiment, right? As a counterweight to thinking of ourselves as a thing, a permanent mark, same mark that was there when I was 18, 
I was there when I was 30. Now, now I was there when I'm 59. Oh yeah, Mark. But I see it as a, a natural system with no center anywhere. In the way that the weather, there's no like midpoint, center point, operational point of the weather today, right? There's no location where weather is because it doesn't have a center. So we ourselves, we think, it feel we've trained our mind, heart to think there's a center like maybe behind your eyes or maybe deep in your chest, my center, this is where I am or in your gut. We have different places where we think we are. But the more honest, the more balanced the awareness is, we see that that's just a construction. It's just a habit. It's just nature happening. So if we think of ourselves that way, and then the interesting question, as John Wellwood says, it's like, okay, so we're Buddhas, we're these natural systems where there is essentially no problem. Learning how to inhabit this human form. Having a body, having sexuality, having desire, having relationship being born in a culture with a lot of suffering, a lot of injustice, a world that really needs attention. Right? So that's a much more useful frame to understand our practice. How do we inhabit this human reality of relationship, sexuality, power dynamics, history of trauma? How do we inhabit this when, it, when we're just these natural systems. And then we really get an idea of why emptiness is, also, uh, is often tied to compassion, understanding compassion. There's really no understanding, deeper understanding of love and compassion without understanding emptiness. You don't know how to be, even in the most ordinary sense, how to be a good parent, how to be a good lover, how to have a decent relationship with your dog or cat, or let alone the whole world, unless you understand, in the beginning way at least, what emptiness, what the Buddha means by the term emptiness. That this experience we're having right now is empty of any fixed center. That means that the habit of creating boundaries, of dis creating distinctions, the habit of throwing things and people and beings out of our heart, it starts to make less and less sense. We don't trust that habit. We do it because it has those habits of throwing people out of our heart, of ignoring, of you know, just not recognizing, not caring. That's just habit. Siding with ourselves, siding with our own opinion, that's just a habit. doesn't mean dismissing, like some of you might have more the habit of dismissing your, ha your view. And somebody else is always right. That's just a habit too. Or thinking your view is right and others' views aren't. That's just a habit. So we can lose a lot of these habits by deepening this understanding. I'll put this quote up on the blog where I link to the book. So 
even though the word emptiness, and it, this really happened in the later Buddhist traditions, it really became this philosophical teaching about some metaphysical truth that everything is empty. But the Buddha's teaching on emptiness, sunā, sunyata, is the uh, Sanskrit Pali words for this, um, it's really meant to point to this very practical uh, training. Like we're training to see what this moment is empty of. Like training the mind to see the moment empty of distraction. It would be really nice to notice those moments where the mind is empty of being identified, empty of taking things personally, empty of being lost in distraction, empty of being caught in, you know, greed, anger, and delusion, sleepiness, restlessness, and empty of wrong view or empty of any fixed view and empty of suffering. So this is what we're waking up to, and any moment will do. So one of the habits, and it relates to that point I was saying earlier, that I'm a suffering human being practicing in order to be free, we always imagine like, oh, I can't practice in this moment because I've got a lot of body pain, or I'm too sleepy, or, you know, i got to do all this stuff first. But see, the point of freedom, the freedom I'm interested in, and I think ultimately we're all interested in, is a freedom that's here and now, that isn't dependent on like the circumstances being just right. Because that's not real freedom. <laughs> like if you need a different moment in order to be free, in order to be happy, you're already screwed. It's like, because you're dependent on like not only finding that moment where you're going to be free, but then like how are you going to keep that moment the way it needs to be in order to be free? that always sets you in opposition to the world, which is fluid and changing and never fixed. So the happiness, the freedom that we're looking for has to be here and now with the conditions, with the way it is. That's what the heart intuits as possible. There may be the confidence in that intuition may not be very strong, but it's probably there if you let yourself attune. Oh, yeah. So then we're looking here and now in the experience, the very ordinary, mundane experience of a human being with a lot of momentum to how our mind is conditioned, right? And that momentum, that conditioning or habit, energy, it's really neurotic. Like I often joke, you know, me growing up late 50s and early 60s, I mean, where the primal conditioning happens in those first four or five years. Think about, you know, like my parents growing up where they grew up on farms in Montana, North Dakota in the 20s and 30s and the kind of conditioning they got, right? The radio programs they listened to, the communities they were conditioned by, their parents, immigrant parents, you know, and then me watching the TV I watched in the early 60s, you know, some of you... My three sons, leave it to beaver, father knows best. I mean, talk about limited conditioning and all of the sort of stuff about white supremacy and this gets conditioned in. I don't know if any of you caught the news article on uh, Weekend Edition, the 
National Public Radio news program on Sunday mornings, they were talking about the famous books that a lot of people read. Uh, what's her name? Uh, House in the Prairie author. Oh. Wilder, yeah. And just about like how, I mean, those books are great and really there's some beautiful values, but in terms of like how white people relate to the native people on this land, you know, and then, you know, how that has conditioned so many generations since those books were written back, I don't know, 20s or 30s. Um, and this is what keeps showing up in all of our moments, this kind of conditioning. This is not who we are, but we have to respect the force of this conditioning. Whatever it is for each of us, you know, will be slightly different or radically different depending on where we grew up and the kind of culture we grew up in. Is that us? No, it's just the way the mind has been conditioned and the practice is to not be confused by the conditioning and not to be afraid of it, even if it's really neurotic or really biased. It's just what it is. It's not personal, but we're responsible to be awake to it, for it. Because otherwise, if we're not awake, if we're not aware, then it will have its conditioning influence and we will be destined to act it out again and again, passing it down to the next generation. And that's not what we want. We want the ignorance that has been conditioned into the mind to die here and now. And the only way for it to die is to see it and to feel it, to be aware of it without acting it out, to be intimate. Right? And this is really the central teaching of emptiness. We have to see that that force of habit is empty. It's only what it is. It's empty of everything else that we might imagine that it is. It isn't more than what it is. It's just what it is, that conditioning. And that's the liberating teaching here with emptiness and how it relates to these very messy, difficult places in our society, in our lives, in our partnerships where we have all that conditioning around gender. In some ways, more than racism, the stuff around gender and maleness, patriarchy, sexism. It's just so systemic, so unseen still in our culture. I just feel like such a beginner starting to see this in my own relationship with my wife in particular, but just in general, in my relationships with others. We see it in our, just in this room in terms of like who speaks more often and how that happens. And it just is so conditioned into our minds, it doesn't stand out. But this is what we're waking up to. And, and in a lot of ways, we don't want to wake up to it because it's messy. The stuff around race, the stuff around gender, stuff around power. And we just would rather continue on with our fixed ideas of who I am and just the ways we construct meaning. But then we're destined to feel tight and afraid and bound up in all the different ways we're bound up. And the Buddha and all of our sort of ancestors, all the people before us, they had complicated lives. They were conditioned by culture in the same way we were. In some ways, their cultures were much less awake than our culture is, as you know, limited as our own cultural conditioning is. But there have been people who have done this practice. We can do it too. 
but it really means developing this trust and being open, being aware, and realizing that when our cultural conditioning, when our habit of our mind constructing meaning, just realizing that's just what the mind is doing right now. This thought is being known. This feeling is being known. It's not less than that, and it's not more than it. Can I feel what this is like? Can I be right here with it? So remember when you start, if you're going to read this book or do other readings, and you know, uh, Guy Armstrong, you know, these days you've got to promote your book. So he's done a number of great talks. I'll link to a few of them, but you can go right to dharmacy.org. All of Comground's talks are also on dharmacy.org. They just exist in a sort of subcategory of Comground meditation talks, except my talks are on the sort of bigger site uh, because those talks at the bigger site are just those people who teach at uh, Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock. But all of Guy's talks on emptiness, if, if you don't want to buy the book, you can just listen to his talks to start getting some background to complement the talks that I'll be giving and other Common Ground teachers will be giving over the next few years, or next year, I should say, a few months. Um, but I'll leave it here so we have maybe time for a few comments or questions before the children come in. Yeah, please. Want to pass it back, Mike? Could you read the full title of the book? Sure. It's Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators by Guy Armstrong. He's one of the guiding teachers at IMS and uh, one of the longtime teachers at Spirit Rock. Other comments or questions people have? Yeah, please, over here. Hi, I'm Laura. A couple things. One, I appreciate you naming and calling out the thing about who has talked more based on gender because it's something I noticed when I first started coming here a couple years ago. Um, And I have really seen change, but it it just makes it feel so much more open and welcoming. So thank you. Um, Also, I have a question about skillful meditation. And when, um, if I'm meditating and I notice that I'm getting caught up in my own dramas or thinking, I can have a certain level of like, it's being known, you know. But I'm curious with loving-kindness meditation about if I'm, if I'm noticing that I'm doing that a lot, I'm stuck a lot, you know, and I'm coming back and I'm noticing, is it more skillful to move into like purposely doing loving-kindness meditation or is it more skillful to sort of stick with this just this is how it is now, I'm going to be sort of stuck a lot? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, if you can, like it's worth trying creatively, nimbly trying a few different ways to stay aware of what's actually happening because that ultimately will be more useful. So before going to the formal loving-kindness practice where you're actually directing your attention to that practice, and we do that both the first and third Fridays of the month in case you ever want to get some more training in the compassion and kindness practices that are part of this. But before you do that, you can, whatever momentum, whatever your mind understands about the compassion and kindness, you can bring in as you're relating to the distractedness, the thinking mind, and the underlying feeling. So remember, when you notice your mind is kind of obsessing or keeps wanting to go back to some content, one of the most important Dharma tricks 
is to notice the feeling that's right underneath that tendency to want to keep returning to the content. So you can first start with a question, and I like, you know, sometimes use the word honey, speaking to ourselves, honey, what does this feel like? What's the feeling here? What's the feel like? You notice the mind is just keeps going back to this memory or to this problem in your life. What's the feeling that's under here? Can I feel this? And see, you see how it brings the kindness right in, the compassion right in, because you can't really open to that unpleasant, yucky feeling unless there's some compassion. Because the the technical definition of compassion, it's the mind that's not afraid of suffering, the mind that knows how to be close to suffering. That's what compassion means. So that's a more organic way of bringing the compassion practice into the awareness practice. But if that doesn't work, if it's too powerful, the yucky feeling just sweeps the mind away, the mind reacts to it, then maybe go to the formal compassion or kindness practice. Yeah, thanks, Laura. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.